This is The Law School Show. Discovering the person behind the resume. Bringing you their stories and their tips on how to succeed in your legal career. Catch it all here, right now, on The Law School Show. Welcome back to another episode of The Law School Show. Today, myself and fellow host and University of Ottawa student, Kelly Humber, are very excited to introduce our guest for today, Professor Charisma Mathen. Professor Mathen is a law professor at the University of Ottawa, and she is an expert in the Canadian Constitution, criminal law, and U.S. constitutional law. She actually has a special interest in the Supreme Court of Canada, judicial review, and the separation of powers, um, and the relationship between law and social media. Uh, She is committed to making complex legal issues understandable to broad audiences, explaining the law in accessible and interesting ways. Um, And as a frequent blogger and tweeter, she actually pioneered the practice of live tweeting from the Supreme Court of Canada. So welcome to the show, Professor Mathen. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Haley and Kelly. It's my pleasure. So today we are going to be discussing a trilogy of cases that discuss the defense known as non-insane automatism. These three cases, Aaron Sullivan, Chan, and Brown, were recently heard by the Supreme Court of Canada, resulting in what will be considered a landmark decision. Today, we want to break these cases down and discuss why they appeared before the court together and the importance of this ruling. Could you first describe some of the relevant facts of these cases and explain what the common thread is connecting them? Um, I think something that people might be wondering is why were these decisions um, somewhat lumped together? It's a great question. So these are three cases from two provinces. So the uh, Sullivan and Chan cases were from Ontario and the Brown case was from Alberta. Sullivan and Chan were uh, came up on appeal a little bit earlier. They were also separate cases. So all of these cases involved uh, male accused who ingested uh, drugs, basically substances, in one case, um, Wellbutrin, in another case, uh, in, in two other cases, magic mushrooms. And while in that state, each of these accused committed violent acts, in one case resulting in manslaughter, and in two other cases uh, resulting in uh, aggravated assault. And at trial, they each relied on a an argument that the drug use caused them to enter a blackout state that in criminal law is called automatism. And because they were in that state when they committed the acts, they could not be found guilty. That uh, ran up against a provision of the criminal code, which goes directly to the ability of someone to make that kind of argument to raise that kind of defense uh, where the automatism, that blackout state, is caused by self-induced intoxication. So where you voluntarily ingest substances, whether alcohol or drugs, and and thereby um, uh, go into this state of blackout. So that was the common thread um, behind all of these cases. And uh, the rule in the criminal code that prevented them from 
raising this defense was challenged under the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So it was challenged as violating the rights of an accused person when they are put on trial. And we can talk about that in a little bit more detail later. Uh, but essentially, the Sullivan and Chan cases were appealed to the Court of Appeal for Ontario, and they were heard together at that point. And the Brown case, which came up a little bit later, was um, at the Alberta Court of Appeal. And the Supreme Court heard the Sullivan and Chan cases together in October of 2021. They heard the Brown case about a month later. So the cases were not all heard together at the same time at the Supreme Court, but the Supreme Court issued its opinions in those cases um, on the same day. That brings a lot of clarity to the timeline and how all these cases, as Kelly put it, were lumped together, which is a question that I know myself and I'm sure many others have had. Now, to bring it back to a couple of the phrases that we've been using during our podcast and that have been used throughout the decision. So we're hearing extreme intoxication, self-induced extreme intoxication. So you went into it a little bit, Professor Mathen. But I'm thinking that some people are kind of hung up on this phrase and and might be comparing this to drunkenness. Now, the court has said that it can involve alcohol. But are we talking about like going to a party and getting blacked out with your friends? Or is this more serious than that? Well, if you go to a party and get blacked out with your friends and we can define what it means to be blacked out and in that state you are still doing things you know walking around moving around and perhaps you attack someone um, that is potentially the kind of situation that we're we're talking about if you have voluntarily taken either drugs or alcohol that caused you to enter that state of blackout. So I think you're absolutely right that this can be confusing because when most people hear the term intoxication, they think of alcohol. But in the law, intoxication refers to um, any substance that can uh, have an intoxicating effect on you, and that would include uh, pharmaceuticals or drugs. The um, other thing that confuses people is that, of course, there are a wide um, variety of degrees of intoxication. Right? So you can be a little bit tipsy, you can be pretty drunk, right? You're having a good time, but you're still more or less in control of yourself. And then you can, you can potentially be in the state where the important thing is that you are no longer aware of what it is you're doing. So to someone looking at you, you appear to be moving around, doing things, but your mind is not directing your body. And that is the legal state known as automatism. And it is that state when it is produced by the voluntary ingestion of an intoxicating substance, whether it be alcohol or drugs, that we are talking about in these cases. So it is an extreme and therefore rare physiological reaction, having taken drugs or alcohol, that gets you into that blackout state. So just the 
the source of the intoxication uh, can be alcohol or drugs. We can get into that a little bit more. In these cases, they were all drugs. And the level of intoxication is extreme. And so that extreme intoxication in the criminal law is linked to the state of blackout where you are not in control of what it is you are doing. Literally, the mind is not um, directing the body. Okay, so we have that disconnection between body and mind, very severe. And I have also heard in different news articles and different commentators on this trilogy of cases say that, you know, this level of intoxication, as you said, it is very rare. And it's unlikely that any of us have encountered this or experienced this ourselves in our lifetime. Would you say that's correct? I think that's fair. I think that's right. Um, I... Essentially, in, in legal terms, we would say that your actions are not voluntary. So they're involuntary. You know, when, in, in, normal, in, in, an, in normal daily life, you know, an involuntary action might be a reflex, a physical reflex. This is obviously a lot more involved than that, but it's the same kind of thing. It's like a prolonged period where you, you literally, you do not have control over what you're doing and you're not aware of what it is you're doing. Which, to follow up on that, maybe we could uh, break this down a little bit and discuss some of the basics um, also of criminal law. Um, some people might be wondering, why does it even matter uh, what state of mind someone is, someone is in when they commit an offense? Uh, if you've proved that they did the crime, then why shouldn't they bear whatever the consequences is under the, under the law? That's a really great question. Um, and essentially the question asks, why don't we just look at the result of a person's behavior and make the conviction hinge on that? The reason we don't do that is that criminal law is about making a person accountable for what they have done. And in order to do that, there has to be a legally recognized basis in which we say they are responsible. For what they have done. And in criminal law, there are two big pieces to that. The first is, as we've talked about, the behavior has to have been voluntary. Uh, so we don't generally punish people if they have a reflex action to something that they, they couldn't um, you know, have, have, have foreseen and they, they really couldn't have prevented. Those are relatively rare cases. The other big piece of criminal responsibility has to do with what we call fault, or um, we can say state of mind. And for us to hold someone criminally responsible for whatever it is that results from their actions, at a minimum, we need to be able to say that they uh, behaved in a way that was unreasonable. So what they did either, um, you know, could have been prevented by reasonable actions. There, there's some legal language in there that is a bit more technical. Um, more commonly, particularly for crimes of violence, we want there to be some actual awareness on the part of the accused as to what it was they were doing, either because they intended to do it, they um, made a conscious choice, Maybe they were reckless, so they knew there was a risk. They foresaw the risk and they proceeded anyway. That kind of active awareness of the situation is um, what we call mens rea, which is a 
term that people might have heard in in other contexts. So that's why we don't just focus on outcome in criminal law, because the whole point of the criminal law is to say, no, you're actually responsible for that outcome. And to do that, there are these other pieces that have to be proved beyond a reasonable doubt. Okay, so thinking of those elements that uh, you've been explaining to us, who does this defense apply to? And what threshold needs to be met specifically? Right, that, that's a really great question. And um, in answering that, I want to point out um, a couple of ways in which intoxication can be relevant to a criminal conviction. The first, which is not at issue in this case, is where a crime requires a special kind of intent. So, for example, for the crime of murder, it's not enough that you knowingly do some violent act onto someone. In order to convict you of the crime of murder, we need to prove either that you intended to kill that person or you intended to cause them serious bodily harm and you knew there was a risk of death and you didn't care. That sort of um, second level of awareness is uh, what we call, and this is a bit technical, we call it specific intent. And in criminal law, in a person can um, try and essentially point, create reasonable doubt that their intoxication prevented them from forming that, for example, intent to kill. Okay, so that's not extreme intoxication. That is intoxication that could be at a somewhat lower level. That is a long-standing principle of criminal law um, and has not been at issue in these in these cases. The and, and and those crimes that require that higher form of intent, they're very small in number. There's a really like a handful, you know, in 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 all of Canadian criminal law. So most crimes don't require that, but they do require some awareness on the part of the accused, at least in terms of what it is they're doing, even if we don't require um, that they necessarily uh, intend the outcome. That is where um, this question about intoxication arose, because for hundreds of years, the criminal law said, if um, no matter how drunk you are, no matter how intoxicated you get, uh, we're not going to say that that intoxication negates your ability to have general awareness of what it is that's around you. Um, about now, 20, 25 years ago, uh, in, in a case called Davio, the Supreme Court of Canada said, um, actually, we think that's unfair. Uh, we think that if the intoxication is extreme enough to have caused you to enter this state of automatism, then you clearly can't form that general intent to commit assault or sexual assault or um, arson or any one of a number of, of different kinds of, of offenses. And in fact, if you, the accused, can prove that you uh, were in that state of automatism, even if it was because of your own choice to become intoxicated, you must be acquitted. The response of the Canadian Parliament was to enact a provision in the criminal code to do away with that defense, that defense of extreme uh, intoxication. And 
what they said was that if the intoxication is self-induced, you can never argue that you your action was involuntary or you didn't have this lower kind of intent. You just can't argue that if while you were in that state of extreme intoxication, you harmed someone. So the defense only applies to crimes of violence. And it says you basically do not have access to that defense of extreme intoxication if you get into the state through voluntary ingestion of substances and while in that state, you, um, you commit the act of, of violence. So that is essentially the legislative response, which, we, which is section 33.1 of the criminal code that was at issue in these cases. Okay, so discussing the political context of section 33.1, we were just touching on that. And so my understanding is that this was enacted in the mid-1990s, right after there was another high-profile Supreme Court case that involved the violent assault of a woman. And this same defense, it was accepted, and the people were pretty outraged about this. So in response, Parliament enacted this new section with the express purpose of doing this at the time was to protect women and children who, as we know, have been disproportionately harmed by violence at the hands of someone who can be intoxicated on alcohol or drugs. And in fact, the interveners in the recent cases that we're discussing today, such as the Women's Legal Education and Action Fund, have emphasized Parliament's two-part purpose of holding people accountable for harming others, while also promoting the safety of women and children. So I suppose a question that we have and that I've seen a lot of the public asking is, how will this purpose continue to be met in the future while balancing the rights of the accused? So how will the purpose of protecting uh, people who are vulnerable, who have historically been at risk of violent offenses from that risk, while also um, adhering to the very important criminal law principles I was talking about earlier around the need to prove fault, the need to prove responsibility that is enough to you know, potentially send you to prison, right? It's a really great question. And one of the things that um, we, we haven't touched on yet is that while the three cases that were before the Supreme Court, A, involved drugs, and B, involved um, crimes of violence, they, for many um, advocates and critics, they were not actually representative of how the defense of extreme intoxication has often arisen in the criminal law, uh, namely that it has historically often um, arisen in cases of sexual assault. And the 1995 case you referenced um, of, of Davio uh, was, in fact, such a case, a violent sexual assault against um, an elderly woman, uh, you know, in a wheelchair uh, who was predated upon by Davio, um, who was an extreme alcoholic, like ingested an amount of alcohol that would kill a normal person. Uh, 
but nonetheless um, committed this sexual assault. And the trial judge accepted um, the evidence of one expert that the amount of alcohol that Davio ingested caused him to enter this automatist, automatistic state. That went up to the Supreme Court of Canada, and the Supreme Court was divided. So there was a split decision, pretty vigorous dissent. Nonetheless, the majority said that there had to be room in the criminal law for a defense based on extreme intoxication that leads someone to um, fall into this state of blackout. That to convict someone when they, for acts that they committed while they were blacked out was fundamentally contrary to the basic prin principles of criminal law. Uh, that is what caused um, a, a lot of, of, frankly, outrage, and it prompted a pretty speedy response from the Parliament of Canada. In under a year, they passed the um, provision that was subsequently challenged in these three cases, Section 33.1. And in doing so, uh, they expressly cited concerns around sexual assault, the need to protect um, vulnerable people, and what they saw as a legitimate concern about the role of uh, extreme intoxication in crimes of violence. And I think it's important to note that the Supreme Court of Canada in these three cases, and unlike Davio, the court was unanimous. So it was a nine judge uh, decision. The Supreme Court expressly recognized that parliament is absolutely entitled to try and respond to these concerns about sexual assault, about vulnerable people, and about the risk that can be created by extreme intoxication. What the court had a problem with, however, was the way that this defense is, sorry, the way that section 33.1, which takes away the defense, the way that it is constructed, and the fact that what it does is, essentially, it substitutes the initial decision to drink or take drugs for the mental state that would ordinarily have to be proved to convict you of the crime of violence. So the mental state for assault, the mental state for sexual assault, it's by definition not there because at the time you commit those acts, you're blacked out. So what you have to accept is that it's the initial choice to become intoxicated that provides that criminal responsibility that I was talking about. And the court said that substitution is just not possible. Um, we don't actually criminalize taking, uh, for example, ingesting alcohol, and, and we, 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 don't, we criminalize possession of drugs, but we don't actually criminalize the actual ingestion of drugs. So it's not even already, it's not, it's not prior criminal behavior. And even if it is, the, the fault, the blameworthiness of that action of taking drugs or, or um, drinking he even heavily is not the blameworthiness of sexually assaulting someone. So you can't substitute those two, those two states. And for that reason, Section 33.1 in the way that it was um, constructed violated important rights in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms that pertain to people accused of criminal offenses.
All right. So there was a lot there. And I have a couple follow-up questions. In the first one, uh, you mentioned about expert evidence that was relied on at Davio. And I was wondering if you could discuss some of something more practical, the more practical side of this, of what sort of evidence is required to show that you are an automatistic state. Like how does someone go about proving this in court? What sorts of like literal evidence would be used as, and is acceptable? Absolutely, it's, it's a great question. So the first thing to note is that this defense is treated a bit, a bit differently from the way that other defenses um, are treated because it actually puts a burden of proof on the accused. Okay, so the classic position in criminal law is that the state, the crown, has to prove everything beyond a reasonable doubt. There are some instances in criminal law where we shift that burden onto the accused. We call that a reverse onus. And the court, um, when it was in the Davio case, saying this defense has to be recognized, the court shifted that burden onto the accused. So the accused needs to introduce evidence, and that evidence will have to be some sort of expert forensic or medical evidence that supports the accused argument of what it is that happened to them, i.e. that their ingestion of the substances cause them to slip into that state of automatism. So first of all, the, the, the accused will have to establish to the judge or jury, depending on how the trial is, is conducted, they'll have to convince that person that they did ingest however much it was that they said. And then that judge or jury will also have to accept the forensic evidence of what the effect of those substances were on the accused. Now, the accused burden, so the accused has, actually has to persuade the judge or jury of these facts. It is important to note that they have, they, they have to persuade them to what we call um, a, a civil standard of proof. So it's a balance of probabilities. It's not the very, very high standard of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. But they still do have to establish that those facts. And if if they don't, like if, if the jury is or the judge is not convinced, we say really, you know, 50% plus one, that this is what happened, then they must reject the defense. So they bear the burden of proof and they will have to adduce expert evidence to support their argument about the effect of, of that, that alcohol and, and drugs. So the other really important point that came out of the um, the Brown case. So, so there were the, these three decisions before the Supreme Court, and Brown is the case where the court um, gets into the actual issue of extreme intoxication. The other issue that arose is this debate about whether alcohol and drugs can have the same effect on a person and actually cause them to enter into this state of automatism. And we talked about the 1995 case of Davio, the, the, the first Supreme Court case, which did involve an alcoholic, did involve actual ingestion of alcohol. Since Davio, many, many experts, scientists, doctors have said, actually, we don't think that alcohol can cause you to slip into this automatism, automatistic state where you then go and commit violent acts in the way that drugs can. And what the Supreme Court of Canada said in the Brown case, these cases, 
the cases before the Supreme Court did not involve alcohol, they involved drugs. What the Supreme Court of Canada said in the Brown case is that it recognized that it is much less likely for alcohol to have this effect. It did not put down as a blanket rule, alcohol can't cause you to, to, to go into an automatistic state, but it signaled that that kind of argument, so a case involving alcohol and extreme intoxication and automatism would be would be essentially a very, very rare case. While it wasn't going to rule it out altogether, it's sending a signal that um, it does think that there are actual scientific, medical, physiological differences between how alcohol works on a body versus how um, different drugs do. I think that's a very valid and important clarification to make because uh, as we have all seen, the way that this decision has been discussed in the media and also on social media, there has been widespread outrage and confusion over it because without this type of context that you've been providing us today and without this legal clarification, there have been some valid fears about how the defense might be used, who it might be empowering, etc. But learning about the expert evidence that's required and all these different thresholds and legal steps that need to be satisfied for this to actually come to fruition, I think, is very reassuring. Uh, however, I, I suppose that we should acknowledge that there is a requisite degree of trust in the law and legal institutions for somebody to be okay with this ruling. So I suppose our next question is, we talked a little bit about Parliament and how maybe the ball can be considered in their court now and how they can go back and legislate to protect these vulnerable groups of people as we have discussed. So I'm wondering, uh, in your opinion, what can Parliament do now? What is the next steps that they can take to ensure that we do feel protected and that there is a clear understanding of how this defense can operate and how it can still strike that balance as we were discussing between the rights of the accused and also the rights of those who have been victimized? Yes. Um ball is most definitely in, in, in Parliament's court. Before I answer that question, I do also want to acknowledge, I want to add my own voice to acknowledging the concerns that have been expressed about, about the ruling. And while it is true that these three cases involve drugs and the court made those cautionary claim notes or observations that I just talked about, they didn't rule out the possibility that alcohol could be the factor that... Um, that leads someone to be acquitted. And while these three cases didn't involve sexual assault, there are sexual assault cases where um, this defense is, is raised. And, you know, if the door is open, if there's that opportunity, uh, certainly someone who, you know, defense counsel um, will, will, of course, uh, make every argument available to them um, in, their, in their client's interest. And you, we can't predict how that will play out in future cases. So I think it is necessary and fair to acknowledge that we don't we don't have perfect prediction into what will happen. That's where Parliament's role becomes really important. Because what the court said is, this answer, this legislative response, the legislative response to Davio, Section 33.1, this, this was unconstitutional. It is... Um, was disproportionate. It was a disproportionate response to a valid concern 
about crimes of violence and the role that intoxicants, substances can play in that. But there are things that you can do to legitimately censure or punish the behavior that causes someone to fall into this state where they become a threat to others. So what what you have to do is you have to punish the choice to become that intoxicated. That has to be the crime that you punish. You have to punish the choice to take those substances knowing that there's a risk and you are reckless in that way. That's what you have to punish. So essentially, the behavior that, that the criminal law can try and target is the behavior before you enter the state of automatism. And we've never done that, right? But we could, for example, create a crime of dangerous intoxication, right? Voluntary dangerous intoxication or a crime of negligent intoxication. So those are things that are discussed in the Brown decision by the Supreme Court of Canada. And I would expect that those are options that Parliament will look at. The other thing that Parliament might wish to do is it might wish to take a stand as to whether alcohol should be eligible for this defense or not. Now, that might become subject to a separate, you know, a new challenge under the Charter. But there is arguably enough evidence, enough medical scientific evidence for Parliament, right, which is, of course, the voice of Canadian society, to say, actually, we don't think that alcohol should be the vehicle for uh, this kind of defense of extreme intoxication. We think it it should be limited to to drugs. So those are a couple of things I think that should be considered by Parliament, and I would expect there to be discussion of that in the coming months. I guess my follow-up question to that is perhaps part a meditation on what might happen next in law and society. I think for some people, this decision still like it just doesn't sit right um, and it doesn't feel right. And I guess kind of to pack a couple of questions in here, what would you say to someone who does not like this ruling? How can people be confident that this ruling strikes the right balance between both protecting the rights to a fair trial of the accused, but also protecting the interests of victims, potential victims, and the communities that they themselves actually bear the brunt of violence violence in these circumstances. I think like you've spoken to the role of parliament, but as someone who hopes to become a legal practitioner in the future, what what role do you think that like individuals in the legal system could also play um, and also just like members of the public generally to better address sexual assault and violence? Yeah, those are critically important questions. They're very, very big questions. I mean, the first thing I would say is that I think I understand the discomfort with this kind of ruling because the person voluntarily takes the substances, enters into this state, and then commits an act of violence, and the legal result is that they're acquitted. It is very easy to understand why that would cause outrage. The and, and the fact that there is no criminal response 
currently possible to that sequence of events, I think is understandably um, of concern to the public. What we also always need to keep in mind, of course, is that the criminal law is the most severe weapon we have to punish people and to send messages about what society values and what it expects of of citizens. And, you know, always a corollary to that is that the criminal law has to observe certain basic principles of fairness and justice, and those have now become entrenched in our Constitution. And the individual results in criminal law can be very difficult to accept because even more important than the individual outcome in the case are the underlying principles that enable us to say the state can do this to people, can put them in jail for the rest of their lives, for example. That's always a challenge. It's a challenge that we put to ourselves as a society because we are a society based on the rule of law and we acknowledge how powerful a tool the criminal law is. That said, the Supreme Court has made it clear that they don't consider it the case that the criminal law has nothing to say to the to some people who voluntarily take these substances and then as a result of that cause harm to other people. There is something that the criminal law can say, but section 33.1 was not it because it just pulls too much against long-standing principles of criminal law and it pulls too much against um, the Charter of Rights. So there is a, a, a big uh, decision now that a society has to take as to what the response should be. And people, legal practitioners can, at, at this stage, can of course, have input through their various associations and stuff. But people can also have input through their their members of parliament. They can follow the proceedings. They can, you know, really try and become more informed. I think that it's natural to have reactions and impressions about criminal law. But uh, to really engage, you want to make sure you have the you have an understanding of what exactly is at stake and, and what the court needs to consider and what and what parliament needs to consider. So I guess there's a, a bit of, um, there's sort of mutual obligations on all sides to um, make sure that we're coming at this question from, from a position of relatively equal sort of knowledge and understanding of what it is at stake beyond the results in individual cases that can be very, that can absolutely be very distressing to people. Before I launch into one of our closing questions, Professor, I just wanted to thank you for such an informative and detailed uh, responses to all of our questions, broad and narrow. And for our listeners' context, Professor Matham was actually one of my very first law school professors. So this makes me miss sitting in her classroom because I can guarantee you that all of her lectures were as enjoyable and informative as this podcast has been. So for our listeners out there, I'm wondering if you have any resources or recommendations for people who are interested in the complex issues that are raised in these cases. And maybe if they're still listening at the very end of our episode today, they're left wanting to know a bit more. 
Well, thank you, Haley. That's that's so kind. And uh, Haley was an amazing student, just for anyone listening. And I'm not at all surprised to see her doing such a great job. And I should also disclose that Kelly is currently working with me on a research project and is also um, just a, an, an amazing student that I'm so pleased to, to know. So, um, yes, I, I think it's, it's uh, wonderful if people want to learn a little bit more about this. It is a tricky area of law. I think, um, Haley, you might remember that we, we did extreme intoxication in, in criminal law, and it's definitely tricky. So a number of the resources, there's some great resources by the Supreme Court of Canada. You know, I really have to commend them for the way that they've tried to make the law more accessible. So all of their proceedings are publicized. All of the materials are publicized. They do put out what they call plain language summaries of the cases. So if, if the particular issue or the interest is in extreme intoxication, I would go to the Brown case. That is the one that actually deals with this issue and look at the plain language summary. All of the materials that were filed with the court, the, the arguments of the various parties and the interveners are also filed. And one thing to note is that because of some certain procedural rules, the FACTA, as we call it, the written memorandum of the interveners um, actually have to be quite short. They are limited to, to 10 pages. So they're not actually very long to read. And you have you'll ha- you, you can see a number of really interesting and quite different perspectives in those interveners who appeared before the Supreme Court. So the Criminal Trial Lawyers Association versus, say, the Women's Legal Education and Action Fund versus the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. So those are short facta, if you will, that you can read. I would also uh, recommend if, if, uh, you know, if you have an hour or two to look at the webcast of the Sullivan and Chan and or Brown hearing. So unlike some other Supreme Courts, like the Supreme Court of the United States, the Supreme Court of Canada actually records the, the hearing and they makes that available on its, on its website. And you can get a sense of how the lawyers interact with the judges and what questions were asked and, you know, could, were they, were they, Uh, telegraphing what they were ultimately going to decide, I think they were. And then finally, if you look at the actual decision in Brown, which you can find on the Supreme Court's website, at the beginning of the decision, before it actually gets to to the substance of the opinion, the Supreme Court lists all of the sources that it looked at. And one of those um, categories is what we call secondary literature, so like articles. And there are a number of articles listed there. I'll put aside false modesty and say that I have a a piece that was cited by the Supreme Court called What's Right with Section 33.1 and a number of other academics, again, from some different perspectives, have have some some really interesting pieces of varying degrees of complexity. So those are a, a bunch of different resources in different formats that people could engage with. That's excellent. Thank you, Professor Mathen. I will put it out there for our listeners that we will do our best to link some of these informative pieces in the show notes. So tailored to the amount of time that you have on your hands, you can comb through those and uh, we will also be sure to link your own piece down there as well, Professor Mathen. Thank you very much. Yeah, and uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, It's been a pleasure. We'll see you later. Thank you very much, Professor Mathen. I know that I myself have brushed up on uh, the automatism lessons that you had touched on earlier and in our first year of law. Thank you very much for sharing all your knowledge with us. I really appreciate it. And I'm sure that our listeners do as well. Well, it was absolutely my pleasure. Hello, listener. 
As I edit this episode, Kristen Schmitz, and I do hope that I am pronouncing their name correctly, has published a piece on the Lawyers Daily to address what they term the legal gap left by the May 13th decisions. So remember when we were talking about how the ball is in Parliament's court? Well, this is a potential solution in the form of Bill C-28. In short, this amendment to the criminal code would mean that, and I quote, an individual would be held responsible for the violence they commit while in a state of extreme intoxication if they ended up in that state through their own criminal negligence. If you want to read more about this, we will have the article linked in the show notes. And with that, I will sign off, for real this time. Thank you very much for tuning into The Law School Show, and we will catch you on the next episode. You've just been listening to The Law School Show. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and now on Spotify, or on our website at thelawschoolshow.com. If you liked what you heard, like us again on Facebook or follow us on Twitter for the latest updates. Human stories, new legal topics, and career-advancing advice right to your earbuds. Catch it all here, next time, on The Law School Show.